Welcome to City Life this Saturday evening. It's good to be here with you. Uh, it's good to be back, honestly. Uh, last week I was doing a wedding, and I used to be a youth pastor before we planted this church. And it was the first time that one of the youth I was the youth pastor for, who I met when she was like 12 years old, I did their wedding. And I've been looking, not really looking forward to that, like almost ominously. And, and yeah, time flies. And uh, that's where I was. But I also want to give a shout out to Anthony because he preached a phenomenal word on prayer that uh, if you didn't hear it, you should. <laughs> uh, you can go to the, the website, cdlifeva.com slash Suffolk. The podcasts are there. Or we live stream on Facebook. You can watch it like I did. You can watch the video because I like Anthony's face. So I was, I'm going to watch it. But what I love about when Anthony shares is it comes from his heart. Like he's a man of integrity, not because he's perfected any of these things, but he wrestles with them faithfully. That's really what God is looking for from us. We never may never be perfect, but let us be people that faithfully wrestle with trying to pray more, pray more effectively, pray for the right things, and really just become prayers, people that do prayer. And in all the areas that God is calling us to grow, where we would faithfully wrestle with those things. And we also talk during the announcements, and Anthony does the announcements often, where we say, whether this is your church or not, we believe God has a church for you where you'll be able to say, this is my church. We put a billboard up that says, find your church, because that's our heart. And we really believe that reflects the heart of Jesus, that if we're called to be Christians and reflect the heart of Christ, then we'll have a church that we can call my church. Because Jesus actually says in Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And this is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. And I think it's fitting that he doesn't just say the church. He puts an important adjective before it, my church. And when you think about church universal, capital C church, church around the globe, yes, that's Jesus Christ's church. But I believe every individual needs to have a church that they can call my church where there's ownership, there's passion about what's going on there and, and how we, you worship every week there. And Jesus even takes it a step further. You go to Acts chapter 9 where, where Saul, soon to become Paul, is, is persecuting the church and he's on the road to Damascus to arrest more Christians, persecute more Christians, and Jesus appears to him. He doesn't say to him, why do you persecute my church? He actually says, why do you persecute me? It's like Christ's union with his church is so tight and so close that what happens to the members of the church might as well happen to him. That's a, a next level bond with the church that we should strive for and faithfully wrestle with. That's a big pronoun, me. And ironically, we probably use that pronoun a lot, me. Historically, we, humanity, have made a lot about me. I heard a, a story from history today. It was pretty remarkable to me, so I'm going to share it. It's from a, a region in modern-day Germany called Brocken, and I didn't take German, so I'm probably going to butcher the name of these mountains, but it's, it's H-R-A-R-Z, Harz Mountains. And when you go to the peak at sunset, this, this awe-inspiring, they're laughing, so I probably butchered it. The awe-inspiring uh, <laughs> uh, phenomenon happens at sunset. If you stand in the right place on this mountain, then as the sun is setting, all of a sudden this, this figure seems to rise in the horizon that's surrounded by light and rainbows, but it's like this ominous, ominous awe-inspiring, ghostly shadow that rises up in the eastern sky. And it's so awe-inspiring and beautiful that for centuries people would go up to that mountaintop to see them at sunset. And they were so seemingly supernatural that some would go up to this mountaintop to, to worship them 
to, to these, worship these figures that seemed like some sort of spiritual manifestation. But then, of course, came the day of disappointment. When they discovered that in worshiping this huge ghostly form upon the clouds, because these mountains are covered by fog and clouds some 300 days a year, that really they were just worshiping this huge shadow slash uh, projection of themselves. They realized that the figure came from standing between the setting sun and all this fog and cloud on the other side. And how often in life do we as humans set ourselves up as the center of life and end up worshiping ourselves or our emotions or our feelings? You know, if we continue to look at history, there was once a time where they believed in a geocentric model of the universe. And this isn't even that long ago. We're talking up to 500 or so years ago. It was believed that at the heart of the universe, we are. At the center is the earth and the sun and all the stars in the sky and everything we see revolved around the earth. It was called this geocentric model. And again, this is recent history. And I think so often in humanity, we kind of live, if I may, a meocentric model of life where we're at the center. And it's natural because we're at the center. We're rooted in our consciousness and everything is happening out here. And then when we encounter new things, we place it and prioritize it in orbit around us, what we want to be close, what we want to be distant. And naturally, when we encounter God, we instinctively act as if he revolves around us and give him a place in orbit. But how many of you guys know God doesn't ask to be prioritized? He asks for everything. God doesn't fit into a compartment that we compartmentalize. He wants all our lives. There's a powerful verse in Ephesians chapter 1, and you can turn to Ephesians because we're going to be bouncing around in that book tonight. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23 in the message version, it says at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. So as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we should passionately seek to root ourselves in the church because it's one way that God fills everything with his presence. It's where we have both communion with God and community with fellow believers. If you have one and not the other, you might find some life, but you're not going to find all the life God has for you. God wants us to have both communion with him and community with fellow believers in the family of faith. See, God created us for more than just belief. And that's important, but he created us not just for belief, but for belonging. He didn't create us just for a spiritual belief where we find faith, although that's key and that's central. He also created us for a physical belonging where we'll also find fulfillment. But that's a shift in a culture where so often we celebrate individualism. And we might celebrate friendship, but it's kind of a friendship over social media that we can filter and, and uh, edit and not really, not a lot of people see the raw, real me. But how many of you know God often calls for shifts in our lives? And when he does call for us to shift, it's often zigging where the culture is zagging. And it's going against the flow. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4 in the message version, I, I love it. It says, God is kind, but he's not soft. I love that. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. You know, this shift in culture, because it was a giant shift in culture from a geocentric model of the universe to one where the sun was at the center, it, it was proposed by a man named Copernicus. And it had such an effect on culture that it's been called the, Pecur the, Pecurnican, the Copernican Revolution. 
from, from religion to politics to art to science to music, it affected the way we consider our place in the universe because it, it's kind of sobering. No longer does the whole universe revolve around mankind. And that was a huge shift in the culture, so much so that in the 20th century in philosophy and brilliant thinkers would use the phrase a Copernican revolution used in any way that there might be a paradigm shift or perspective shift in the culture. It just became a common phrase, an idiom. And as shifts like these, they happen in the culture at large, naturally as the church is in the world but not of it, it tugs and pulls at church culture. It's no different with our culture today, deemed a progressive culture, but where everything that happens isn't always truly progress according to God's word. And it can tug and pull at church culture. And the enemy loves to use the context of the culture around us to subtly slide in maybe some distortions or flawed perspectives into the church. I'm not talking about everything from a perspective of individualism or a perspective of consumerism or a perspective of classism or even things like sexism or racism into the church. You know, I was an English major when we would examine books and write papers about books. We were supposed to look at what was called the cultural context. And that's not unique to just English, but it, when we would examine novels, you would look at the society that the characters lived in and how the culture would affect their opportunities, how the culture would affect their decisions, how deeply embedded values and attitudes are difficult to change and they can ultimately change the characters. And so often the conflict in these books and in these novels would be between the characters and the context of the culture around them and the world they inhabited. Again, there's a similar tug and pull because the church is called to be in the world and in the culture and not be some, some hermits that huddle up on the weekends, but to truly be in the world but not of it. And you know what? We see it in, in this book. We see it in the Bible, in the narrative history. We see it as the Israelites went into the promised land. We see it even in the New Testament. Like you might think the Gospels, yeah, that's, that's, that's a narrative as well. But you look at the epistles and you begin to realize each one of these letters is, is written to a place. Like Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. Galatians to the church in Galatia. These are people that lived in the context of very real historical cultures that lived and breathed and were planning the church and were a part of history. And we quoted Ephesians 1. And tonight we'll also dig into some of Ephesians chapter 3 and chapter 4. But again, Ephesus was a, a real city where people were walking out their faith in this Roman culture that was very pluralistic. So in Roman culture, they really didn't have beef with the fact that they were worshiping Jesus. They had a problem with the fact that they would only worship Jesus. Jesus was the way, the truth, the life, and they weren't going to worship Jesus and Caesar and all these other gods. That was the problem. It was such a pluralistic, tolerant society, but you needed to worship all of the above. The fact that it was just Jesus is where the problem was. Or you look at that city in, in Ephesus, it was this tourist destination because there was a prominent, famous temple to this goddess in the city, and it was almost like Disney World. But with pagan religion, you would go there and you would get little trinkets and you would buy almost souvenirs when you would leave the town. So you had everything from commercialism to pluralism to relativism to materialism that were all in the context of the culture in Ephesus. And it affected their faith. And that's why in the book of Ephesians, we see Paul return again and again to the unity we're called in doing life together as the church. He uses images like the body of Christ. He uses images like a building and we're all stones within it and families and even marriage itself. These stress interdependence, interrelatedness, 
belonging, connection, mutuality. And we in the church today, in our culture, we're called to the same connection as a church, as a family, as a body of Christ. Because we too are called to be in the world, but not of it. And just like the church in Ephesus, the church in America, or our American culture, it can sometimes project paradigms and perspectives into our church community that can, in times, strengthen it, but other times cripple it. What am I talking about? I just want to look at three in this brief series. I don't know how long it'll go. But sports culture, consumer culture, even travel culture, our, our relatively new ability to just take off and go places that wasn't the case back in the times of Jesus. Because these prominent pieces of our culture can project onto the way we consider our faith, our walk with Christ, and our community as a church. What am I talking about? Well, tonight I want to look at the influence of sports culture. Maybe half of you just rolled your eyes because you care about as much as sports culture as I do about The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or HGTV, right? Different strokes for different folks. But hear me out. Sporting events have played pivotal roles in communities around the world throughout history. It's to the point that sports and society are deemed so vital that the United Nations has declared them a human right. This is from the United Nations. They said sports and play are human rights that must be respected worldwide. And thanks to Twitter, social media, television, and alike, sports has a bigger reach and consumption than ever before. And where people consume things, there's money. It affects economies. It affects all of the above. And you know what? The, the church office up the road in Newport News we don't have a cooler where we can have, like, cooler conversations. You know, like, if you're in the office, that's where you meet up at the cooler. You're drinking water. You're just talking about pop culture. We got a Keurig. Yeah, so you can call it a Keurig conversation where Fred and I will pull up first thing in the morning. And maybe you would think that our cooler combos would be about eschatology and debating premillennialism and postmillennium and amillennialism and all of the above. But I hate to burst your bubble. Usually the conversations would, hey, did you see that game? Right. <laughs> You see what happened last night? You see what J.R. Smith did, right? <laughs> That's going to be the conversation on Tuesday. <laughs> because we, like most of our culture, we talk about sports. Uh, in our culture, I go to the gym early in the morning before going to the office sometimes, and ESPN is always on. And they don't even talk about statistics or scores anymore. It's, both, it's, it's like TMZ for men. <laughs> Hollywood tonight for men. Like there's just debates, there's gossip, there's projection, and all of the above under the umbrella of sports, because we as a culture love to talk about sports and love to hear people talk about sports. And maybe you're thinking, speak for yourself, but it is huge in culture. And when I think about that, that we love to hear people talk about sports, and we love to hear people uh, even talk about sports ourselves, I would love to see revival in the church to where you would look out in the culture and they would talk about Jesus and talk about what Jesus is doing or what the church is doing just as much as we do sports. That would take a massive revival, but I believe for it. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that through followers of Jesus like yourselves gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about. Again, I would love to see that. We're through the work of the church. People are talking about what the church is doing, what Jesus is doing, because he's on the move, because the church is on the move. Why aren't, why aren't we seeing that revival? Why, why don't we see that momentum? I think sometimes the perspectives, again, from our culture can trickle into the church. And I'm not just saying it's only sports. And I'm not here to bash sports. I have so many jerseys in my closet. Steph is always like, when are you going to get rid of these? 
Hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I don't just like football. I play fantasy football. So I can't mock anybody and any of your hobbies because I'm that passionate about sports. So I'm not here to knock sports tonight. But there are perspectives within, I believe, sports culture that can trickle their way into, into the church. And for some of us in the church, sports are they're secular. They're just something that goes on out there in the secular world. For others, <laughs> it's borderline religion. <laughs> You look at some of these man caves with all the jerseys and the setups. You throw three dozen candles in there, and it looks like one of the, the uh, shrines in India I would have passed when I was over there. But you think about what goes on in a man cave when you're watching sports. You're watching, spectating, looking on as, as other people play. And if you go to the arena or you go to the stadium when these sports are going on, there could be thousands Tens of thousands, tens upon tens of thousands of people watching, maybe a couple dozen people play a sport and engage. See, in sports culture, most of the people involved when the actual game is going on are passively spectating rather than actively participating in the sport. And in pro sports, that's probably good. You don't want me playing for your, your favorite basketball team when I'm 5'9 with shoes on, can barely touch the net, and I'm about as athletic as a turtle. Right? You don't, you don't want that. But in the church, passive spectating, it's not good. God calls us to be active participants, whether it's gathering, relating in relationships, serving, giving. We're called to be engaged and do those dozens of one another's that we see in New Testament Scripture. And I'm here to tell you tonight that your life carries deeper purpose and meaning than passive spectating. That we aren't saved to just watch the skies until Christ returns. But why do we often drift in the church towards just passive spectating? Why, why don't we see more people with the passion of Jesus Christ? Like this is my church taking ownership and leading the charge as it builds God's kingdom. And I think one flaw perspective when we look at the work is that it's for the elite. It's for the elite. You see it in sports. Take football, for instance. Only one in 17 high school football players will go on to play NCAA men's football. So that's just under 6%. Of those, the ones that will be get drafted by an NFL team is about one in 50 or 2%. So you take all the high school seniors eventually drafted by an NFL team, it's 9 out of 10,000 or 0.09%. So those playing as a pro, they're the elite of the elite. And I think sometimes in the same way, when we look at the work of the church, sometimes we see it as it's for the elite or those that have some quote-unquote calling. Where the church, I believe the church has a, a history of, of raising the bar to ministry that Jesus actually came and he lowered. Because if you look at Jesus and the culture he entered into in Jewish culture, when he showed up, it had gone on for centuries to the point that spiritual leadership was only for the most elite. To be a priest, you needed a pedigree. To be a scribe or a scholar, you needed to be smarter than everyone else. To be a Pharisee, you had hoops to jump through to prove your intellect, to prove your discipline. So I don't know the stats, but I would bet it was just as hard for a kid to do all of that as it would be a high schooler today to make the NFL. But Jesus took that protocol and he punted it. He took the, the bar that had been placed and rather than raising it even higher, he, he lowered it. And this is one of the reasons when you look at the Gospels, the Pharisees, they kind of look down on the disciples, scorn them. Jesus' motley crew, because in their eyes, they didn't measure up. But if you look at 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the church, he says, think of who you were when you were called. You weren't wise, influential, or of noble birth, but God chooses the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, so that no man may boast. 
Bottom line, I'm telling you tonight, if, if you question whether you're called to ministry, I would say you are. And part of the reason I can say that with confidence is because I think we've distorted what the word ministry even means when you look at the Bible. And definitions matter. Like if I go to Europe and a bunch of people say, hey, we want to play football, do you want to play? I'd say, yeah. And I put my gear on and I go to the field and I'd be waiting for that, that oblong brown pigskin with the laces on it to throw around and most likely they drop on the ground a white ball with, with black checkers on it and they start kicking it because their football means something different. Definitions matter. Definitions matter. And I think, and I don't wonder if we've done the same thing in the church to the definition of ministry. And as a result, I think most of the church thinks that my position is on the sidelines. What do I mean? I'd love to see an end. There's a use for it, but to this phrase called to ministry or, or, or being called to, quote, unquote, full-time ministry, where this call to ministry is often beheld as a rarefied call to a pulpit or a platform that somehow has become higher than a call to a, a workplace throughout the week where we take Christ Monday through Friday. And I contend that that's because as a church culture, we've lost our bearings and we forget just where the sidelines are and we forget where the front lines are. I have a, a friend who about 10 years ago uh, was hired by a church. They wanted to hire him as a pastor. And he said yes, but he didn't leave his full-time job. And he wanted to stay there. And his motivation wasn't, well, I need that money if I'm going to be a pastor. His motivation wasn't, I, I don't want to burn that bridge just in case ministry doesn't work. I want to be able to go back. His heart was, look, he realized that's the front lines. That, that's the harvest field. That's where the work of ministry goes down. And he didn't want to unplug from that. And I, I really respected that. He realized that Ephesians 4.12 talks about as a, as a pastor, as a teacher, as people in the church, their role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So ministry is not some elite calling that only pastors walk in or teachers walk in. They exist to equip believers for this universal call to ministry. I often get asked, did you go to school for ministry? And luckily I have a filter that catches sarcasm most of the time, most of the time. Because I, I want to say, yeah, I went to, I went to William & Mary. I graduated with a, a degree in English and art, and I wanted to be a journalist or an artist. And then after a pause, be like, oh, you meant vocational ministry, right? But I try not to major in sarcasm and pettiness. My point, though, is that often we misdefine ministry. Biblical ministry, again, is a universal call for every believer. No matter what you do day to day, every Christian is called to ministry. And whenever we define ministry as an elite calling to serve Jesus full time, the rest of the church will make its home on the sidelines. We drift into passive spectating rather than active participating because we're called to minister to the front lines, which leads to a second important question. First, we got to define ministry. What is ministry? Well, it's this universal calling for the believer, but what are the front lines? Where are we called to minister, right? Where are we running these plays? And I think sometimes we get it twisted because we see the church as the front lines. But if I was to take the analogy to sports a little further, I see it kind of as the sidelines where you pull up next to your coach and they pull out the whiteboard, and they draw the X's and O's, and they lay the play. They cast the vision for what you're going to do on the next drive, or they cast the vision for what you're going to set out to do, but then you leave the sideline to go do it on the playing field and the front lines. You still got to go run the plays. And in Christianity, that doesn't happen within the four walls of the church. I've shared this stat before, but you look at Jesus' interactions in the Gospels, there's around 112. Ten of them happened in the church building or the temple. 
Over 100 of them happened outside in what you could call the front lines. I believe that this ratio, Jesus was trying to teach us something, that there's something important in this ratio that, that that's where the battle is won and lost, on the front lines. Your nine to five is a front line. Your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, that's the front lines where God wants to use you to minister. I don't know if you were there, but we had our encounter night, the, the night of worship where both campuses came together in Newport News, and we worshiped for a couple hours. There were baptisms, but there was a moment in that service where everybody was encouraged to take a note card and write down the name of somebody that they were praying for, that they wanted to see come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and the life he has to offer. And I know some of you wrote down names that are right here in this stack. Chances are a lot of the people in this stack, we're not going to find them frequenting church. They're not going to be in a church weekly. But where these people are, that's the harvest field. That's the front lines. That's where God is calling us as a church to have an impact and a ministry. And if, if, if the City Life Church isn't affecting stacks like this and people like this, then our definition of ministry needs to be redefined and retooled. And please, no, we, we prayed for these names. Pastor Fred and I, we've been passing this back and forth. It's kind of like uh, uh, we both kind of want it because we hold it, we pray over it, we're praying over these. I hope you guys are continuing to pray for the names in this stack. And I'm not saying all this tonight to knock the work of prayer, especially after Anthony preached on the work of prayer last week. But I've said it before, when you ask, you should be prepared to act. Because when God answers, usually he wants us to be a part of the action and do the work of what we're asking for. And I would contend that ministry and work and reaching people done outside the, the church in the quote-unquote front lines is, is every bit as important or more important than the work of a full-time minister like myself in the church. Because we simply exist to equip you to do the work on the front lines. And if that sounds like a stretch or maybe I'm overstating it, again, you can look at the ratio of Jesus' interactions, but let's again, let's look at history. We talked about the Copernican Revolution, but you can look at the Communist Revolution in China juxtaposed to the church at the exact same period in Western Europe. Because when communism took over China and it rose to power, some 6,000 missionaries and pastors and preachers were expelled from the country. They were booted from the country, and, and a persecution against the church began, where house churches were made illegal, religious education was was also made illegal. Anybody who stayed and tried to teach would be persecuted and arrested. So all these missionaries and all these preachers and teachers were forced to the quote-unquote sidelines to wring their hands and think, man, what is going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to this church in China? Meanwhile, the church in Western Europe was enjoying religious freedom, had phenomenal pastors and teachers and highly trained people leading them. And when you look at those two situations, you think, man, China is lined up for a tragedy. Right? They we're going to see something tragic happen there. And, man, Western Europe, they're set up for a revival. They got this phenomenal setup that they're walking in. But what happened over the next decades is the church in China exploded and the church in Western Europe dwindled. It's been estimated by historians that the revival in China during that takeover is the greatest numerical revival in history. Conservative estimates are that there were about 75,000 Followers of Christ, excuse me, 750,000 followers of Christ in China when those missionaries were expelled. But in 1980, when the country opened its doors again, there were an estimated 35 million believers in China. 
this massive revival had happened where this, this communist revolution in China, it didn't cripple ministry and revival. It unleashed ministry because every believer was pushed to the front lines to do the work of ministry. It became a universal calling, not the work of a few who had this, quote, unquote, full-time calling on their life. Meanwhile, in Western Europe, the church at large sat back, passively spectated, and waited for the full-time ministers to do the work and ultimately dwindled. Man, the same way the Copernican Revolution changed our perspective of the universe, what if there was a revolution in the church that caused us to recognize ministry as a universal calling for every believer? That we could redefine ministry, redefine the front lines. And then finally, if we, we ask the question, what is ministry? Where is the front lines? The final question is, okay, what are, what's the work at hand? What's the play we're running? And that's a whole other sermon. But with it being 615, I'll give you two things. First is, is gathering. We look at that, that verse from Ephesians 3. How was the plan and glory of God known and talked about according to Ephesians 3? Through the gathering in the local church. There's a ministry and equipping that happens when we come together on a weekend. There's a filling of the Holy Spirit. There's a foundation that's laid in prayer. And I would tell you there's a witness when you make church on the weekend a priority. And there's people you know that don't go to church, but they know that that time is untouchable because that's when I go to church, right? That Saturday night or Sunday morning, that's a witness to the people around you. How much the church means, how much Jesus means because it's my church. And I'd encourage you, whether, again, your church is here or, it's, or you're going to find another church, make it your simple bar that you want to hit to attend church three times a month. There's always that one week where you're sick, you're traveling, whatever it is. But if you're following Christ, he calls us not just to communion with God, but to a community of believers. And you can do that simply by attending three times a month. But the church, it's not called to go, quote, unquote, no huddle. It's a football term. We're called to huddle up, to gather. Coming together and gathering, it's imperative to walking in God's purpose as a believer. But again, we can't forget to break that huddle. Like it, I don't want to harp on football forever, but you, you huddle in football, and then you break that huddle again and again and again. We're called to come together as the church weekly, or even more than that when you consider life groups and doing coffee and meeting together and talking about Christ. But then we're called to break that huddle and go run the play. We're called to break that huddle and, and walk with the vision God's given us. And, and what is the play? It's the Great Commission. It's what we might call here reaching, the pathway of evangelism. And if I could have the worship team come up, what's the Great Commission, right? To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. If you're new to the church, you've maybe just heard that for the first time. That's awesome. But if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you may have heard that. You've likely heard that. But, you know, I saw a survey just a couple weeks ago. It was a report released by the Barna Group, which does these prominent surveys, and they surveyed thousands of people. And they found that 51% of people in the American church were unfamiliar with the term of the Great Commission. Drew a blank. What's that? 51%. And it gets worse because the other 49% didn't like have it memorized and locked and loaded. Of the remaining 49%, 25% said they had heard it but don't remember what it said. 7% said they were unsure, and only 17% of the people surveyed said, yeah, I know what the Great Commission says. I know what it means for me as a believer. I'm familiar with the Great Commission. 17%. And you might hear that tonight and, and say what, what I said when I read that. Wow, what a bunch of buffoons, right? What a bunch of idiots. 
And it's funny how quick I drift and we drift towards self-righteousness. Like, yeah, I'm part of that 17%. I know the Great Commission. I've got it memorized, right? I can write it down for you right now, and I know exactly what it means for the church. But then the question is, are you walking out the Great Commission? Right? Are you actually making disciples and teaching people to obey all that Christ commanded? Are, are you sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope you have? Because on Judgment Day, it's going to be easier for the people that are unfamiliar with the Great Commission. Because we're responsible for what we know. Right? We're responsible for the, the commands we've been given, the commission we've been given. We've got the play drawn up for us. Again, some of us have it memorized. But are we walking it out week to week? Are we breaking the huddle? You know, may we as a church be a church that breaks the huddle, that realizes that God has given us a purpose and is not to passively spectate through this life. It's to be active participants in all he calls his church to do, namely and prominently this great commission to make disciples of all the nations. But guess what? It starts in our neighborhood. We don't need, we do need people that are going to go cross borders, but we need people also that are just going to cross the street and share the hope that God has given. It starts there. There's a lot of people in our neighborhoods that need it, that honestly haven't heard it. But are we faithful to it? It's not enough to just know it, have it memorized. Are we, are we doing it? May we realize that each one of us is called, that ministry is a universal calling. And, and when we don't feel equipped, guess what? We have the Holy Spirit in us. And God doesn't always call the equipped, but he equips the called, and he equips us as we go. And I pray that if we didn't put any names in this, that we'd have names in mind. We gave out those bookmarks weeks ago where we put names of people that, that we were praying for. May we realize as we pray for these people that the call to reach them, when we ask, God intends for us to act. God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit tonight. God, help us to consider this, this universal call to ministry, what ministry truly is and what it means for the church and what it means for us day in and day out. God, help us to consider where, where you engaged and what the front lines are, Lord God. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the opportunity to come together every Saturday night and praise you and worship you. Be filled with your spirit. Be filled with your word. And God, I pray that at the end of every Saturday night, we would go back out those doors realizing that, man, ministry begins now. Yes, there's a ministry that goes on here as we're equipped, but God, I pray that you would remind us that there's work to be done outside those doors. And I pray we'd be like Isaiah that says, here I am, send me. God, I pray that tonight that that could be the confession of our lips. God, here I am. I don't want to be stuck on the sidelines. I realize that you called me to something greater, not just passive spectating, but active participating in this great commission in building your kingdom and growing your church. And God, I pray that as we go into worship tonight again, God, we stand in your presence. If we could all stand as we go back into worship, God, I pray that you would once again, God, fill us with your spirit. God, I think about the, the, the church in Acts, the boldness they walked in, the growth they saw. It wasn't by their strength, by their might. It wasn't by their knowledge. It wasn't because they were especially equipped. The, the leaders looked at them and they were unschooled and ordinary, but they were filled with your spirit. And the leaders could tell they had spent time with you. Let us be people that come into your presence, come into moments like this to huddle together and seek your presence and be with you. And God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so we can do the work you called us to do. Jesus, I thank you that you came 
that you chased every one of us down. God, while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, I pray that tonight we would find communion with you. God, I pray that we would find community here as believers. God, fellowship here in the family of faith, belonging and the fulfillment that comes from that, Lord God. And here tonight as a family and as a church body, we close in worship and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Let me tell you, if you need prayer for anything, we have the hilts back here that would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. But otherwise, let's worship as a church and praise Jesus as we pray.